Now, I'm going to read for us. We're reading from Genesis chapter 2. It's on page uh, number 2 in the Bibles that you would have been given if you're in the building, if you're at home. Uh, welcome to you. Uh, the, the words will be on the screen. We're reading verses 4 through to 20. Uh, this is one of the early accounts of the creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had appeared, uh, yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first, the Pishon, the winds through the, uh, that winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The na name of the second river is the Gehon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of, all, out of the, the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called them, called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, if you're joining us for the first time this morning here in the building or uh, online, welcome. You're joining us in week three of this series that we've titled Big Questions of Life. Last year, about September, October, we st started a survey of our friends and family members, uh, and we asked them this question, what would make the world a better place? We had about 70-odd responses, a third to a half of them from outsiders, uh, and really, as I said last week, four very distinct areas actually emerged. It's interesting, there's a very common mind on these four areas. Uh, the first week, we had a, a visitor, David Robertson, speaking, and he talked about tolerance and judgment. Um, last week, I spoke on the, the concept of a, a slower pace for life. This week, it was meant to be uh, John Lavender, who we've heard speak previously. Uh, unfortunately, John, one of his family members, was quite badly injured last week and is bedridden, and so John can't be here. So I'm taking this week, uh, which is on the environment. Next week, Glenn uh, Davies, one of our parishioners and the, the former Archbishop, is taking the question of peace between nations. So today's question is this. Does a more environmentally sustainable life equal a better world? Does a more environmentally sustainable life equal a better world? Now, this is, I think, a really relevant topic. I mean, I can understand why generally our visitors, our friends, our neighbours might have raised this, because I think this is a, a key issue. It's going to be a key issue. You can see 
uh, both our political, both sides of the kind of political spectrum are trying to find their answer to this question because they understand it's becoming more and more a question that's of relevance to our society. It's a key issue, but I think it's actually a key question for Christians as well. In uh, 1967, Professor Lynn White wrote a, a, quite a, what turned out to be quite an important paper. And in it, he said this, he said, Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion the world has ever seen. And, and from that understanding of Christianity, he then argued that because of that, uh, the Christian faith has been used as um, the justification for man I guess, treating, treating the environment poorly, using it for their, its, own, their, its own means, its own needs. Right? So humankind, uh, poor treatment of the environment can be traced back, in his theory, to this Judeo-Christian value that runs through, uh, a legitimization, a justification for treating the environment poorly. Uh, and, and to be honest, there have been pastors over the years who've who've had some pretty outrageous sound bites that have captured this. One, one famous pastor saying, I know who made the environment, he's coming back to burn it all, that's why I drive an SUV. Uh, and it was a very inflammatory comment, no pun intended. It really did actually um, polarise people. People had a real sense of, oh, this is what it means to be a Christian, someone who has total disregard for the environment because they're so focused on humans. As we answer this question, does an envir a more environmentally sustainable life equal a better world? What I hope will really emerge from the course of this uh, talk is a very clear consensus. The answer, according to the Bible, is yes, resoundingly yes. A more environmentally sustainable life does equal a better world. The Christian faith cares about the environment. It cares about creation. But I hope as we as we reflect on what the scriptures, the Bible has to say about this, we'll see that it's not as simple as that, actually. That the Bible actually has something more nuanced and I think more insightful to say about the issue of creation care, of, of environmental ethics, of environmental sustainability. Now, before we go anywhere, here's where I think the Bible absolutely agrees with um, the kind of modern secular environmental movement, which often thinks about the environment as a common good, something that we don't just get to enjoy, but we need to pass on uh, to the next generation, which we share with poorer countries, which, with more disadvantaged countries, and so therefore we have a responsibility to care for. The Bible absolutely agrees with it. In fact, Pope Francis wrote an encyclical about the environment. One of the key points he makes early in that document now, he's, of course, the head of the Catholic Church, but on this we, we absolutely agree, is that the environment is this, what he describes, a common good. It's shared between cultures, between nations, and also between generations. And, and, and at the heart of Christian ethics are two principles, love, your, love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. And on, because of that second principle, we have a responsibility to care for the environment. So on, the, on, on this level, you know, when a secular environmentalist will answer, yes, more sustainable life equals a better world, we say, we agree with you. Yes, actually, we have a responsibility for a more environmentally sustainable life. We share a common good. The Bible actually takes it another level. It says we have a responsibility because actually the environment is created by God. 
So the environment is valuable for many reasons. Uh, first of all, it's valuable because look at this. This is Genesis 2, this passage that I just read for you, verses 8 and 9 and then 15. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I'll just highlight a couple of verses. This is one of two accounts in the Bible which describe the creation narrative. And in this, in both accounts actually, and it's, it, it, it arises in this account, the writer Moses, very clear about who creates the world. It's God. God creates it. We see in the first chapter that he's the one who creates in a very systematic and ordered way. In this chapter, we see that it is God who brings about the minutiae and the beauty of creation. God plants the garden. He is the one who makes all things grow. Creation is not just wind it up, as I said last week, and let it go. God is intimately involved in bringing about the, the flourishing of the environment. God makes it grow. But interestingly as well, you see what the place of man or humanity is in this story. Their job is to work it and take care of it. Uh, sometimes we, people rely on chapter 1 where uh, they also describe it as ruling over it, as if that, that gives humankind an opportunity to just use it as they fish for their own purposes. But chapter 2's account gives it a new dimension. It says the person's like a gardener. Humanity is like a gardener of creation. And gardeners don't just kind of um, destroy, burn and destroy the garden that there is. They, they, they work to ensure that it flourishes, that it's fruitful, literally. And so this is, this is the biblical view. And so it, this is, then carries through in the Old Testament. We see that God, when he establishes his first kind of society in the nation of Israel, his laws account for the value of the environment. So here's from Exodus 23. We looked at this last week when we talked about rest. This is the commandment about Sabbath. Now, in Exodus 23, it commands that we take a rest. Six days you work, but on the seventh day, do not work, uh, partly because of us and who we are, who God is, as we talked about last week. But here, interestingly, uh, Moses says, so that your ox and your donkey may rest. That's, that's, that's pretty extraordinary. It just reveals, there's, there's other great passages, Deuteronomy 20-something, uh, where God's talking about, uh, he, he tells, if you're laying siege to a town, don't damage the trees. There's these beautiful little asides in the Bible where we see that God is, is concerned about, he's aware of, he loves his creation, and that's what he's working towards. Uh, and this, this line in the Bible, it really does affirm this statement, and a more environmentally sustainable life does equal a better world. In fact, that's part of the, the law and the shape of God's culture and, and society that he's developing in the Old Testament. I think there's these beautiful asides in the New Testament where the t there's this great scene where Jesus is about to feed the 5,000 in Mark. And you know what I love in that account? The writer Mark includes that he got them to sit down in a field which was filled with grass. <laughs> it's such a small little aside. Like, it, the grass captures God. You know, it, 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 he, he loves the creation that he's in. Uh, so I think, on one level, we, we, I want to say that as I read the Bible, 
I think it absolutely affirms this, the, the intuition behind the question, does a more environment and sustainable life equal a better world? It does because the, God wants the world to be sustained. He wants it to grow. Right? And he wants us to be part of that. Now, I said it's a yes, but there's more to it. And I think there is. I think the Bible actually says more about the question of environmental sustainability than simply, yes, the environment's really worthwhile, so let's look after it. I think it it helps diagnose where we are and what the problem is and why the world is the way it is in a way that takes us beyond simply a sustainable system. I want to say the problem perhaps with the premise behind the question, does an environment sustainable life equal a better world, is... That sustainability implies a system. Like it just, it's, it's about just continuing it, making it keep going on and on and on. But I think a sustainable system is not the ultimate, actually. I think this, the Bible has a much more vibrant picture of, of the world and the created world. First of all, I want to say the Bible says something you will not find in a secular vision of the environment. The Bible says the reason we wreck the world is not because we've got the wrong systems in place. It says the reason we wreck the world is because of sin. Because of sin. Now, hold, stay with me for a moment. Some of you, you just find that archaic. Just stay with me. Here's what the Bible says in Genesis 3. It says, this is, this is the moment after Adam and Eve have consumed the fruit from the tree, right? The, the, the moment when they, they break the one rule that God has asked. They say, cursed is the ground. God says to them, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. It's very clear. He says, sin doesn't just damage the relationship between you, Adam, and you, Eve. It doesn't just damage your own internal heart. It damages the world. So, so the, the environment, the, the, the degradation, the sense of which we're, we're environmentally in a worse place than we were 300, 400 years ago, that is a product of sin. So that's the Bible's insight. Now, I said to you, some of you will find that just archaic. You'll think that you're making something religious that doesn't need to be religious. But you just need to think about what the Bible says sin is, okay? The Bible, you think about sin primarily as a rule-breaking moment, but in that rule-breaking moment, there's a deeper understanding of sin, which is that God has been removed from the center. He's been taken away from the God position. And someone else's, namely in, in the original account, Adam and Eve have taken the role of God. But it's true of all of us. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He is coming up with a definition of his sin, and he says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. See that highlighted section? That is, that is Paul's understanding of sin. It is that people do not treat God as God. They do not glorify him or give thanks to him for who he is. They don't treat him as the creator. Now, if you think of that as sin, that starts to really open up the question of the environment and why, why we're in the place we're in. That's where we start to see the insight and the beauty and the nuance of what the Bible's saying. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where creation really captures you, like the moments like David was describing at the start of Spotlight. I remember being in a river in Africa. We went uh, there for a wedding and we did the whole safari thing and one moment we were on the Zambezi doing the whole white water rafting thing and we got to a clear point and there at this moment we were like in this huge gorge and the, the cliffs are just towering up, 70, 80, 90 metres. They're huge. You, know, you kind of look up, you can't see the top of them really. You can just see the edges of it. And in that moment, you know, I'm a, I'm a young Christian believer at that time, but I just, you can't help but think, who is this God who creates this? That night, I remember looking up the stars, you're seeing this whole new part of the sky, which you've never seen uh, from, from Australia before. And uh, the, of course, it's in the, middle of, in, in the middle of the wilderness, so there's no ambient light. And think, who is this God who has created this? When you encounter creation in its rawness, you're reminded. Wendell Berry, who's an author, says we actually, he says, we actually need to live in awe of creation rather than feel like we've completely mastered it. Now, he's a, he's a Christian writer, and I think what he's picking up on, actually, most environment secularists would, would agree with, actually, because they say often the reason why we treat the environment so poorly is, is technological pursuit. That's their argument. We, we filled our life with the pursuit of creating things, creating things that we are living our life in the things that we've created, that we've lost contact with the natural environment. That's why we don't value it. But I think, I think that's exactly what the Bible's saying. You know? we, 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 and we've forgotten that Genesis 2-7, that, that humankind was also formed from the dust of the earth. And the great sin is that Adam and Eve forgot that they too were formed from the dust of the earth. You notice that that's what the animals was formed from. That's what Adam and Eve were formed from. They've forgotten that. And so in that moment when they transgress the law and they replace themselves as God, they are going from the created to the creator. They're forgetting the natural environment, the awe of it. You see how actually what the environment secularist is describing is what the Bible is diagnosing. The core reason why we treat the environment as poorly as we do is actually sin, is actually putting ourselves at the centre of the picture, is losing contact with this sense of God as creator. God as creator. So I think that's the first thing. The Bible gives a new understanding to the problem that we have. It's not just a system. It's not just about sustainability. There's a, whole, there's a whole inclination to the world which is wrong. The other thing, the problem with a sustainable system is as much as the world is a common good, which we're handing on, and that's what sustainable implies, isn't it? It's keep the world in a way that the future generations can use it. As, as good and true and as much as we want to affirm that, that's actually not the purpose of creation. See, creation is not for you. Agreed. I think everyone agrees with that. I mean, anyone? No, that's not true. Most people would agree that the created environment is not just for them. Okay? I think it's a fairly palatable argument from environmentalists that the created world is for the next generation and the next generation after them. But, you know, the Bible says it's not even primarily about that. The Bible says the world and everything in it is actually for God. So the verse that we just used is our memory verse, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. You see that? See what the psalmist is saying? He's saying they are about 
Not, a, not even about reminding you. You don't even mention. You're not mentioned in these verses. They are solely about bringing glory to God. The purpose of creation is about God's glory. And look at what Paul says in Colossians later. He's talking about Jesus. He says, all things have been created through him. Jesus created all things. He's part of the creative act of God in Genesis. But importantly, and for him. The whole world is for him. Not just your life. Everything. The cockroach is for Jesus. I love that. That... uh, little aside of David's. The cockroach is for Jesus as much as the waterfall is for Jesus. Everything is for Christ. You see, actually, environmental sustainability, the problem is it sets the bar too low. It just says, let's just keep this going for the next generation so they'll have blue skies on a Sunday morning. The Bible says, let's keep this going so that we can see the glory of God, so that God would be glorified. That's a much higher bar, actually, for thinking about the world than secular environmentalism. This is the beauty of what the Bible's saying. I think the other problem with the whole environmental sustainability movement is that it is a graceless pace. It's a graceless place. Now, and that's not true for everyone, of course. I hope that there's many people in this building who believe in the concept of environmental sustainability. I hope so. But I mean generally the movement, the activism that's behind it. Like all activism in our day and age is a fairly graceless activism. It's based on polarising people. You're either for the environment or against it. It means that you either believe in the environment or you believe in coal. You're either in for the environment or you believe in, you know, non-renewable energy sources. There's a polarisation here, and what's more, it's not just you're either in this camp, you're in this camp, you're either good or you're wicked. I mean, we, this is, I'm just picking one issue, of course, in our culture, but this is a great hot-button issue to describe it. We, 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 we attribute a moral virtue to the position that you take on this. A moral virtue. I remember having... Um, uh, dinner with a guy who, who we known for a long time. He he loved meat. He did the whole Brazilian barbecue thing, you know, uh, gorged himself on barbecued meat. Anyway, he had this light bulb moment, became a vegan. <laughs> hey, if you're a vegan, God bless you. You're 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 making greater sacrifices than me. Uh, it wasn't the case of becoming a vegan. It was the the self righteousness that developed at the time of this kind of transformation. It wasn't just that he had found a personal point of conviction which he needed to apply to his life. It was that everyone else had suddenly committed a great moral injustice. To me, that's the greatest challenge of all these questions. It's the greatest challenge, I think, is our capacity to make... An issue like this, a question of moral righteousness. And that, to me, when we say a a, a world, a a life more environmentally sustainable equals a better world, has the possibility of turning this issue into the question of moral righteousness. And that's not how the Bible intends to play it. You know, I think about Lynn White, his quote, Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion. I, I, I don't agree with the premise behind his quote. 
don't think Christianity is about people. Anthropocentric means it's, a, it's people-focused or human-focused. Right? I don't think it's Christianity is about people. It's not its main focus. The main focus of Christianity is actually Christ. Christianity is the most Christocentric religion. And I think when we come to understand that, we start to think about this topic in a completely different way. See, when you put Christ at the centre and then you look at the world, it changes the way you think about the environment. Jesus. With Jesus in mind, what do we learn? First of all, we learn that Jesus affirmed the created world. He loved it. I mean, he comes and he becomes a human. He takes on flesh. God is not afraid of mixing with the created world. He's a, he's a laborer. He's a carpenter. He works with his hands. And, and so Christ, when he teaches, he teaches using the natural... I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. Jesus is captured by the natural environment. Actually, it, it fills his teaching, his metaphors, his images. It fills his life and his occupation until he turns to his life of ministry. Jesus loves the natural environment. So you can't have a lower bar than environmental sustainability. You can't have a lower bar than that. But he's, he's saying more than that. The beauty of Christ is that he enters into this question with grace See, Christ deals people with people who differ with, from him with such grace. This is extraordinary. Think about him. Right? You know the New Testament writers say about Jesus? He was a man without sin. This is, these are Jewish writers. They don't say that about people because they understand that's only true about God. It's not true about any other human. Their whole life and culture has been about dealing with sin in their life. But they can say about Jesus, a man without sin. And yet they'll also say about Jesus, the same writers will also say he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He who's without sin always had space for sinners. Always. That was the great accusation against him, actually, by the religious elite. Jesus always deals with people with grace. And of course, the purpose of his grace is to reunite them to their creator. That's the whole reason he comes. He ultimately takes their sin on them so that those great mistakes in creation in Genesis 3, which run through the whole of the story, can slowly be undone, unwoven, unpicked. Jesus is bringing us back to the creator. But the gospel says more than that. See, the, the, the end point is not, hey, you get to now talk to God as your creator again. You get to go back to that. The end point is so much better than that, isn't it? It's, it's Jesus inviting people to pray to God as father. Our father who art in heaven, he'll say in the Sermon on the Mount. You get to talk to God as a creator, not as just as a creator, as your heavenly father. I think that's crucial. Because you see, children love what their fathers love. Children love what their fathers love. My brothers um, schooled in Sri Lanka, uh, and when they went back there to school, they, they couldn't speak Sinhalese, the main la- one of the main languages there. So they had to go to international schools, which taught in English. My dad, however, had obviously grown up in the government system. He went to... Uh, one of the preeminent government schools, St. Thomas's. What was really interesting is my brothers, despite going through these international English-speaking schools, they always affiliated with St. Thomas's. 
because it was my dad's school. They loved what my dad loved. Children love what their fathers love, good fathers. Children love what their fathers love. And I think part of the gospel is that not only does it reorient you to God as your father, it reorients you to the things that he loves. I love these verses from this, uh, from this hymn. It's, a, it's an old hymn. It says, This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. And I love the things my father loves. And you can see how once you, once you start to see God that way, you start to see his created world that way too, right? This is what my father loves. And so I love it too. The other thing about seeing the world through Christ's eyes is it, it helps you to treat the question of the environment with hope. I think the thing that actually puts me off secular environmentalism most in our day and age is it's actually just depressing. It's It's depressing. It paints a picture of, of the future as if, sure, we could fix that, but we probably won't. And let's not think about what life will be like in 100 years. It paints the picture as so big and so all-encompassing. There's nothing we can really do. I love these words from uh, um, Colin Jost, who's part of the Saturday Night Live crew. He says, we don't really worry about climate change because it's too overwhelming and we're already in too deep. It's like you owe, owe your bookie $1,000. You're like, okay, I've got to pay this dude back. But if you owe your bookie a $1 million, you're like, I guess I'm just going to die. I love that because he's really captured, I think, what most people, why most people disengage with caring. They just think it's all too far gone. It's hopeless. But the gospel is not that. The gospel finishes with these great lines in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The gospel is that God has sent his son to redeem this world, to renew it, to refresh it, to bring it about into its new and its better way, its better form. See, there's no other religion actually that says that, that the end point of all things is the renewal of this world. Every other religion says the end point of things is to leave this world behind. But the gospel says, renewing this world. The gospel says, God is committed to his world. He loves it. Cockroaches and waterfalls and all of it. And so it sets us up to actually have a hopeful engagement with the world that we live in. As I finish, let me finish with these words from C.S. Lewis. And uh, I guess the answer is, yeah, a more environmentally sustainable life does lead to some form of a better world, but the gospel... The gospel leads to a world where the life, the environment is not just sustained but flourishes and brings glory to the God. Lewis says this, for Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God has made the world but also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with that world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the uh, insight of the Bible into your world. And we thank you that it is your world that you love and we pray that you would uh, help us to love the things you love. And we thank you for the hope of the gospel, which says that 
we're not too far gone because you are sovereign and your plan is ultimately to renew all things, us included. In Jesus' name, amen.